Today, I want to talk a little bit about resolutions, vows and swearing. As we all know, yesterday was New Year's Day. And how many of you made resolutions yesterday? Did any of you make a New Year's resolution? Raise your hand. Wow, not very many. We're all scared to make resolutions, I can see. I didn't make one either. This is probably the first year I did not make a New Year's resolution. Uh, I don't know why, but it just didn't come about this year. New Year's resolutions, they're, they're kind of interesting if you think about them. In every culture, there are various customs which are followed to formally establish an oath. In every culture around the world, there's different ways in which people make oaths. And the, the binding of that oath is also culturally uh, contextualized based on certain customs or manners. In other words, in some customs, if you swear to God, that's a very binding oath. In other customs, if you swear by your grandfather, that's a very binding oath. Uh, as we all know as Americans, when the President of the United States is sworn into office, we all agree and understand and comprehend as a culture that that is an utterly binding oath. There's no way around that oath. At the same time, as a child, when I used to make a promise to another uh, child to, to do something or to give them something, and all of a sudden at the end of my oath, if I pulled out my crossed fingers, it was then understood that I didn't need to carry out that oath, that that oath was not in fact binding. Today, we're going to look at Jesus addressing the binding nature of oaths, and he has something very specific to say about it. Beginning in Matthew 5:33, Jesus addresses the Jewish cultural modifications made to the subject of swearing oaths. His teaching on the subject offers a more complete understanding of the genuine intent of the Old Testament law, but the Jews were now modifying that law. Take a look in, in your outline if you'd like or in your Bible at Matthew 5:33 to 37. Jesus says this, Again, you have heard it was said of, to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these... Is from the evil one. Let's pray. Father, we invite you this morning to enlighten our minds and to cause us to understand and to comprehend these words of Christ. Lord, we as a culture have devised various ways by which we make oaths binding. And today we're going to look at a way in which the first century Jews were attempting to do the same thing. Yet, Lord, there's a distinct lesson to be learned in Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5. And I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would help us to discern and to pick out the meaning that is behind Jesus' teaching here. I pray, Lord, that you would enlighten our eyes, give us your spirit to interpret your word. We thank you for this time this morning. In your son's name, amen. A little bit of the context of Matthew. Uh, as, as many of you know, the Gospel of Matthew uh, was written with a specific Jewish 
uh, audience in mind, more from a Jewish perspective. Matthew was a Jew, a disciple of Jesus Christ. He, he is highly familiar, of course, as a Jew, with the Old Testament law. And he is also equally familiar with the sophisticated reasoning of the Pharisees as they interpret the law. Oftentimes the Pharisees would take components of the law and add to it various technicalities or, or subtract from the law at times. And Matthew is very familiar with the reasoning behind the Jewish interpretation of the law. He knows that the Jews are especially concerned with physical compliance to the law and that they often prided themselves in their obedience to specific aspects of the law while missing the larger picture. In Matthew 5, Jesus record, or excuse me, Matthew records some of Jesus' earliest teaching known as the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus spoke the Sermon on the Mount uh, to a gathering of disciples and the multitudes just north of the Sea of Galilee. My wife and I, uh, along with uh, her parents, got a chance to visit the, the general site where the Sermon on the Mount is taking place. And it's, it's a beautiful, a beautiful uh, setting overlooking the Sea of Galilee in which all these multitudes had come to hear Jesus speaking. And as he begins the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus starts to describe a certain kind of person. He describes this person as blessed or blessed. These types of people are those who are poor in spirit, who are merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers. He says these types of people are also going to receive a certain kind of blessing. They're going to receive the kingdom of heaven. They're going to receive comfort. They will be filled. They'll be called sons of God. What Jesus is doing in the earliest part of chapter 5 is he is distinguishing a kind of righteousness needed for entrance into God's kingdom. And this kind of righteousness is in stark contrast to the Pharisees and their interpretation of the righteousness of the law. He is setting, Jesus is setting the stage to rebuke the first century Jewish interpretation of righteous living and to offer a more complete interpret, interpretation of the Old Testament law. Take a look at our uh, first slide here on Matthew uh, 5.17. You'll notice that Jesus makes it very clear in, very early on in his teaching that he has not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. He writes in verse 17, Do not think I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. We need to keep that in mind as we continue to interpret this text. So Jesus, by saying this, is emphasizing that the righteousness attend, attained by the Pharisees through physical compliance with the Old Testament law is not a sufficient type of righteousness. <clears throat> a follower of Christ must have a greater kind of righteousness, one that surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees if a person aims to enter heaven. Thus, he says it in verse 20, For I say to you that unless your righteousness, righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Today, I want to speak to you on one particular critique that Jesus has of, their, of the Jewish interpretation of righteousness. It is found in Matthew 5.33, but there are six instances in which Jesus addresses the Old Testament law. There's a, the chart I have that shows these various, uh, how, how Jesus addresses it. In Matthew 5.21, he begins to address their conception of murder. Now, mind you, 
This is their perception of the law. Uh, Fred and I had a good discussion this week that every time in, in each of those reference right there, the Jews didn't always have the law correct. They had a perception of the law that sometimes Jesus corrected and other times Jesus gave a fuller meaning to. In the first one, you shall not murder, they had a correct perception, but not of the principle. Second, adultery, a correct perception of adultery, but not of the underlying principle. And it goes on, divorce, swearing falsely, eye for eye, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. That last one, which we won't get into today, was a misinterpretation of the Old Testament law that Jesus was correcting. Because as you read in that text, he says, but I tell you, love your enemy. Because the Old Testament law did not advocate hating your enemy. Uh, There's scriptures in Deuteronomy that attest to helping your enemy's ox when he falls in a ditch, uh, which is hardly an indication of hating your enemy. And so what we have is a lack of understanding in the core issues of the law that Jesus is going to address. For instance, in the first example, in murder, the Jews understood the exterior, exterior ramifications of murder. They understood that they were not to murder someone. They were very aware of that law. It wasn't something that was hidden from them. But at the same time, there was a core issue that Jesus was addressing, which was more of the principle of the law. And that is that unnecessary anger and unresolved disputes are also uh, forms of sin that ultimately can lead to the greater sin of murder. So Jesus is getting to the core that they are unaware of. Now, for our text, you're going to notice the same situation. Swearing falsely in verse 33, which is our text today, the Pharisees, the Jews, the first century uh, uh, men and women in Israel understood that they were not to swear falsely before God. What they were not understanding, which we shall see very shortly, is that they had no comprehension of the subtle deception and trickery that they were implementing into their oath-taking. And Jesus is going to address the core issue. How does Jesus do this? Well, he has a certain formula as he addresses the Old Testament law. It's a three-part formula, and it's found in, in just about all of these six examples of addressing the law. Number one, Jesus says, you've heard it said. You've heard it said something about the law. Secondly, And I'm sorry, and in number one, he's talking about the Jewish interpretation of the letter of the law. Secondly, Jesus says, but I say to you, now I'm going to give you, Jesus says, a more complete interpretation of the Old Testament law. Now, it is interesting to note, and it's necessary to note, excuse me, that this is not a new law. Jesus is not advocating a new law. As you and I already read in Matthew 5:17, he did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Instead, he's, in, he's indicating a greater kind or a greater type of righteousness. And thirdly, he is showing life applicable illustrations. Now, these illustrations address how a, how a follower of Christ can fulfill the principle of the law and not merely the letter of the law. So again, to our text... I want to read it one more time and we'll start to dig, dig through it and pull apart the meaning. Jesus says, again, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely. So there's part one. You've heard it said. But shall perform your oaths to the Lord. Here's part two. But I say to you, do not swear at all. 
Neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. And here's part three, the life applicable illustration, the greater kind of righteousness. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Starting in verse 33, you've heard it said, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oath to the Lord. Where is Jesus, uh, where have the Jews got this interpretation of the law? There are four passages, well, I, I'm showing you four passages, next slide, that the Jews are, are pull, extracting this, principle, this uh, law from. In Exodus 27, which is, a, uh, which is the, uh, excuse me, the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Skipping down, look at Deuteronomy 6.13. You shall fear the Lord your God and shall serve him and take oaths in his name. So clearly, it was understood that oaths in the Old Testament was not only permitted, but in some sense, encouraged, uh, allowed. But that such oaths were not to be sworn falsely. In other words, they were to be carried out that God's nature might not be maligned by our failure to comply with the oath. So the Jews understood this greater picture, not to swear falsely. The word used in the New Testament, in Matthew 5.33, indicating to swear falsely, is a Greek word known as epiarcheo. It's a verb, of course, and it means literally to break an oath. To break an oath. In, in, in another instance in the New Testament, it's found in 1 Timothy 1.10, and Paul described, translates it as perjury or perjurers. So, now I want to uh, look at what, is it, what does it mean to swear an oath? As we're trying to break it down to the core, what, what are we talking about? What, is, what does it mean to swear an oath in the Old Testament and in, and in, and in Jesus' time? Matthew Henry's commentary, which is not a commentary I usually recommend. Uh, it's not a commentary I refer to very often, but it had an excellent definition of swearing, and I want to read it to you. It says, In swearing we pawn, which means to gamble or wager, we pawn the truth of something known to confirm the truth of something doubtful or unknown. We appeal to a greater knowledge, to a higher court, and imprecate or invoke the vengeance of a righteous judge if we swear deceitfully. I think this is a very accurate picture of what the Jews understood swearing to be. They understood it to be an invocation of a higher uh, court or a, high, or a greater knowledge. They didn't always understand their oaths to be made before God, however, as we were going to see. And thus that led to them trying to get out of their oaths. Take a look at verse uh, 34. Jesus says, But I say to you, do not swear at all. Now here we come to the crux of the passage. Do not swear at all. What does Jesus mean here? Is Jesus advocating that we're not to take oaths at all now? Or is he talking about a certain kind of oath? What does all mean in this case? Um, if we're going to interpret Matthew 5.34, do not swear at all, we need to keep a few things in mind. Number one, we need to understand that there are various New Testament references to swearing oaths that we must account for. In uh, Matthew 26, Jesus is seemingly put under oath by the high priest Caiaphas. 
And he doesn't object to this oath. In fact, Jesus keeps silent. And finally, the high priest says, I, I, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell me if you are the Christ. And Jesus breaks from his silence and answers him. So it's interesting that Jesus doesn't object to him being under oath. Uh, also, Paul, in three cases, no, no, at least three cases, in the New Testament, refers to him calling God as a witness that something is true. He says, as God is witness, I tried to come to you, Corinthians, but, but I was unable to. So Paul is making oaths in the New Testament. And in Hebrews, there's a reference to oaths in the judicial sense that it ends a dispute and that it seems to be permissible. So we need to account for this as we're interpreting Matthew 5.34. We also need to account for uh, the fact that Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law. If Jesus didn't come to destroy the law, then how can do not swear at all be a destruction of the Old Testament law? Thirdly, we need to account for the fact that, uh, as, as I said, the Old Testament permitted oaths. It said in Deuteronomy 6.13, you shall take oaths in my name. And finally, we need to understand what is the meaning of all. What is the meaning of all in this text? Jesus is, in a sense, uh, we need to understand if Jesus is qualifying all. And what do I mean by qualifying? Well, is he, is he putting a boundary on all, or is he making all in a general sense? There's three options to this, and this is a principle that you can take in all the scripture. So this is, a very, this is, in my opinion, a very important thing to understand. When you come across all, the word all in the New Testament, or in all of scripture, you need to ask yourself three questions. Number one, does all mean all in the general sense? In other words, in this case, Jesus is prohibiting all oaths. Does all mean all in that sense? Secondly, does Jesus mean all in the specific sense, in that all oaths of a certain kind are, are being pro prohibited? And thirdly, which is very close to the first one, is Jesus using all in a hyperbolic sense, hyperbole? That just means that Jesus is using the word in a general sense, but in an exaggerated form. I've, wrote, I've uh, in red, you'll note three words there, inconsistent, consistent, consistent. And I've written those words based on my interpretation of this text. I believe that it is inconsistent based on the New Testament examples, based on the Old Testament law, based on Jesus' words in Matthew 5.17. I believe it is inconsistent to say that Jesus means all in the sense of all oaths. It doesn't seem that that's what he's saying. It seems more consistent to say that either Jesus is referring to oaths in a specific sense, in other words, that the kind of oaths that you are doing, Jews, are prohibited by me. The kind of trickery oaths, trying to get out of your oath-taking, which we're going to see how they're doing, are going to be prohibited by me. And it's also conceivably consistent to say that Jesus is making a hyperbolic statement. In other words... I prohibit all oaths, a very exaggerated claim, to get to the general problem that the Jews were having, and that is that they were making oaths in a very loose, in a very, um, in a very uh, trickery and deceiving sense. So these are our options to, to interpret all. And again, this is something that you can take with you throughout all of Scripture. Paul, in the New Testament, Romans 11 you'll find that he doesn't always interpret all in a general sense. Sometimes he says all in a specific sense. And also, um, I thought of another example last night as I was putting the finishing touches on this lesson. Uh, U2, the famous rock band. How many of you know of U2? Some, not all. 
They, they wrote a song a while back, I think in the early 80s, in, the, in which the chorus declares, all I want is you. All I want is you. Well, occasionally I, uh, I sometimes might sing that song to my wife. And as she uh, hears me singing those words, surely she understands that when I say all I want is you, it is not to the exclusion of my desire to want to watch baseball or my desire to want to eat Swedish pancakes in the morning. Uh, surely she understands that my all is qualified in the sense that of all the people in the world that I could spend the rest of my life with, all I want is you. She understands that that's not to the exclusion of other wants or desires that I have in my life. So I'm saying all in a very specific sense there. So, what does all mean? It appears that Jesus is making a qualitative all. An all that is specific. How do we know this? Well, take a look at, excuse me, take a look at verse 34 again. Jesus says, but I swear to you, do not, but I say to you, do not swear at all. And here's his qualification of all. Neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. The religious leaders of the day were illegitimately teaching the existence of distinctions in the binding force of various oaths. And that is what Jesus is addressing. He's addressing these so-called distinctions. How do we know this? Well, there's another passage in Matthew 23 that I want to take a quick look at in which Jesus indicates some more distinctions that they are making. Take a look at Matthew 23:16 to 19. Jesus says, addressing the Pharisees again, Woe to you blind guides who say, Whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift of the altar that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? You see the discrepancy there? The Jews are teaching, the religious leaders are teaching, oh, if you swear by the temple of God, well... You can get out of that one. We're going to add a little bit to the law. We're going, to, we're going to say that's not quite a binding oath. You're not necessarily required or obliged to perform it, as it states in the text. But, oh, if you swear by the, the gold of the temple, now that is a whole other matter. Okay, that's not like crossing your fingers like the temple is. But if you swear by the gold, well, then you better do it or else you're going to be in trouble. Or they say, oh, if you swear by the altar, eh, that's not a big deal. But if you swear by the gift of the altar... You better do that one. That's what God wants. Jesus is saying, no, you're getting it all wrong. You're putting these meaningless distinctions upon the binding nature of oaths. And I want to correct your interpretation of that, Jesus says. Donald Hagner, who is a New Testament theologian at uh, Fuller Seminary, writes this concerning the, this idea of the Jews. He says, it seems to be assumed that oath-taking is in practice more often a means of avoiding what is promised than of fulfilling it. The Jews were trying to find ways to avoid their oaths rather than fulfill their oaths. And that was the core issue. In, 
Also, Donald Hagner describes these oaths as substitute oaths or substitutive oaths. He says these substitutive oaths by heaven, swearing by earth, swearing by the temple, by the altar, supposedly these things don't mean so much. He's saying these substitutive oaths are not what Jesus is desiring. It's not what the intention of the Old Testament law is. In other words, God is implicated on your outline. You'll notice uh, on the back page there. Jesus is communicating that God is implicated in all sworn oaths. For he is the creator of all that exists. God is implicated in every oath. That is the principle that Jesus is communicating. These substitutive oaths were losing the genuine intent of oath-taking in the Old Testament law. Jesus gets to the heart of the matter that no form of trickery with words, no subtle reasoning by the Pharisees can dismiss the fact that they were to perform their oaths to God. And now we come to the final portion of the text, the part three in a sense, the, the illustrations that Jesus offers. Again, Matthew 5.20 talks about a greater kind of righteousness than the Pharisees. And to them, we need to understand, to the Jews of that day, that was an incomprehensible statement. Jesus said, you must have a greater kind of righteousness than the Pharisees. But to the Jews of that day, the Pharisees had the highest form of righteousness. So that statement, while you and I sometimes gloss over it, was an unbelievably uh, difficult and and, and hard to, to swallow statement for the people. They were saying, it's impossible. We can't have a greater kind of righteousness than the Pharisees. What are you talking about, Jesus? Here is where he begins to start talking about that greater type. He says in verse 37, But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Let your yes be yes, and your no, no. Whatever is more than these is from the evil one. In, uh, in Greek, again, uh, this is, we're going to get a little technical, but, but follow along. It will make some sense. There are suffixes put on the end of verbs. Uh, letters at the end of a verb that indicate how a verb is to be translated. And it is interesting to note that the only verb that is in command form in Matthew 5, 33 to 37 is in verse 37. When Jesus says in verse 34, do not swear at all, that's not in command form. There's an implied command there. But in verse 37, Jesus uses the first command verb. In other words, I think this might have two uh, two applications, and it, my, I'm saying might, because it's not necessarily true, but it's possibly true, and it's, conceiv- it's, it's very conceivably true. What Jesus is u- doing now by putting the word let in command form at the end of the passage is he is, number one, further qualifying the word all in verse 34. Jesus is saying, remember, I wasn't saying all in a general sense, but in a specific sense. And secondly, Jesus is, in, in a sense, saving the best for last. He is indicating Here is the end of my teaching on this subject. Here is the qualitative, better way of righteousness that I want you to grasp and to understand. And that's why I'm putting the command at the very end of the passage. What does Jesus mean by verse 37? Well, very simply, speak the truth at all times. Speak the truth at all times. When you say yes, let that mean yes. Let it be as if you were saying an oath, Jesus says. You don't need to qualify your yes. Yes, I swear to God, is the same as yes, Jesus says, for the follower of Christ. He says, if you want to convince others of your sincerity, you shouldn't have to convince them with an oath. 
Now that's, if we think about that, that's, that's hard in practice. That's very hard in practice. I told uh, Hank Redderson, yes, I will pass out bulletins for the month of January. And then I called him this morning and said, I forgot I'm preaching. And uh, in a sense, I, I, you know, I, I, I went back a little bit on my oath. My yes wasn't yes. I, I wasn't aware of all the circumstances surrounding my yes to him. So now I'm going to hope to pass out bulletins later on in, in, in these Sundays. Jesus is saying, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't be spurious in, in making oaths. And he indicates why. Why you should do this. Because anything more, verse 37, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Whatever is more then yes and no in common speech is from the evil one. And there are two examples of this that we'll look at just really quickly. Uh, the first is an example uh, from King Herod. If you'll notice in Matthew uh, 14, Herod is making, we're all familiar with the story, he's making a promise to his um, brother's wife's daughter uh, who he is having an affair with. And he's saying, I'll give you whatever you want. Up to half the kingdom. He swears this oath. And the daughter in turn says, well, my mom wants uh, John the Baptist's head on a platter. And it says there in the text that he was grieved. He was sorrowful that he had made this oath. Because it wasn't something that he really was wanting to do. It wasn't something that he had in mind as he was making that oath. And he, but he made do on his oath. Look again in Matthew 26. Peter... Whatever is more than these is from the evil one, remember. Peter is now making these rash oaths that have problems in them. This, of course, is another very familiar oath in which he's denying being associated with Jesus Christ. I deny it with an oath, he says. And then he begins to curse and to swear, which not, only mean to, uh, which not necessarily mean to use vulgarity, but to just rashly throw out all these oaths and to say, I swear by God, I swear by heaven, I swear by the gold of the temple, it is not so that I'm with this man. And we all know that Jesus then turns to him and, and gives him a look and says, hey, uh, remember about the three times before the, the crow uh, calls out, you're going to deny me. And Peter is reminded again that his rash oath led to evil. So, what do we do with those? Well, there's, there's principles in oath-taking that we need to keep in mind. And I've, I've picked through five of them. It is not that oaths are not to be permitted. That is not the sense of the text. I think we've established that. So some principles that we need to take as we make, make oaths are these. Number one, we need to realize that there is no variance in the binding force of sworn oaths. That they are always, always sworn to God and are always to be kept. There is no variance. Number two, oath should be a rarity and not a norm. Not a normal means of communicating the veracity of one's statement or a promise to do or not do something. So they're not to be used rashly for those types of oaths or from the evil one, but they are to be used uh, very sincerely, very carefully, considering all circumstances, which, which uh, I put down number three for. When you're making an oath, be mindful of your inability to predict future circumstances that might cause you to betray an oath. James speaks of, um, you know, not saying today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and do this or that. He says, you don't even know your life. It's but a vapor. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, I will do such and such. 
So we are unable to predict the future. Let us not make oaths that might be broken as a result of future circumstances that are unknown to us. And, and four, speak the truth on all occasions. Again, don't rely on the oaths to confirm your veracity or your sincerity. Speak the truth on all occasions. Finally, I want to leave you with the words of Solomon, which I, I think are really, really just nail it for me. So, uh, Ecclesiastes is my favorite book in, in the Word of God. And it speaks to my heart every time I read it. And uh, Solomon wrote these words in chapter 5. He says, Don't be rash with your mouth. Let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes through much activity, and a fool's voice is known by as many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. As we perhaps make our New Year's resolutions or make vows or promises to people, let us keep in mind that there, there's no distinction in the binding force of what we say. Our yes should always be yes. And our no should always be no. And others should know that they can trust all that we say. Let's pray. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would allow us to conform to this principle of the Old Testament law that Jesus is is reiterating. Lord, that we are not to, to make rash oaths that we are not to use your name in a vain manner, in a manner that defames your character or your essence. But Lord, let our words be filled with truth at all times. When we say yes, let it be yes. And when we say no, let it be no. I pray, Lord, that you would impress upon all of our hearts to speak the truth in all circumstances. In your son's name we pray these things. Amen. I uh, really appreciate what Neil had to say. I thought it was an outstanding message and it's something you don't hear much about today. I think uh, and we all we all know how important it is to know that we've got that we have friends and that we ourselves are people of our word and that our yes means really yes and our no means really no. I thank Neil for that encouragement. One thing I did forget to mention in the announcements about Neil is this first month He's going to be working closely with Fred, and that's one of the reasons we wanted to sort of start right away. 
before Fred left, so there could be sort of a, a good transition there. And I've asked Neil to, you know, as far as getting going, I've said the best thing you can do right now is to immerse yourself in all that's going on in the church, just to begin to know the various ministries. And so if you're involved in ministry on uh, any kind of a leadership level, uh, be mindful of the fact that Neil's going to be coming around. He's going to be trying to understand how your ministry works. I mean, he's already involved in a number of things, so obviously those things are not as needful for him to get to know as the things that perhaps he hasn't been involved in, whether it would be the music ministry or the Awana program or whatever it is, that, that you just really help Neil to understand what it is you do and how it works so that he'll be more uh, he'll have a broader picture of our church and how it all comes together. We come here to this point in our service, and it's not an addendum, it's not an add-on, it's something that's very critical, because our Lord instituted the Lord's Supper as something that He wanted to be observed regularly in the church, throughout the church age. And we're part of that age. Until He returns for His church, this is what we're to do. We're to preach the Word, yes, we're to pray, yes. We're to sing, yes. And we're to observe the Lord's Supper, yes. That's what is to be fundamental activities in the services of a church. And so I want just to call your attention to our Lord's words in Matthew chapter 26, where we read, As they were eating, Jesus took bread, and he blessed it and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, the New Testament, which is shed for, the, which is shed for many for the remission or the removal of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until I, the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. I think Jesus has left for us a very beautiful picture of what he intends for us to do. We're to sing, we're to express our love, we're to eat, and to enjoy fellowship together. But in the context of that, just as in the context of this Passover meal, Jesus took bread, specifically. He broke the bread and he gave it to his disciples. He said, take and eat this. It's a symbol. It's something that I want you, when you take it, to remember my body, my human life, which was which is about to be sacrificed for you on the cross. I want you to take this cup and drink it and to think of my blood and to think that it was actually shed, that I really did die. And in dying, there is a basis for the forgiveness of sins, not only for God's removal of your sins from His sight, but the removal of all sins from all of our sight. And so we should be forgiving people, just as God's forgiven us. And if there's anything the Lord's Supper speaks about, as we look back over years past, we think about those who perhaps have offended us or done things that are wrong. We need to be the first to forgive. The blood of Christ that we represent and celebrate at this very moment speaks boldly about the forgiveness of sin. Our Father, as we come before you to take this precious meal, may it be a reminder, the reminder for which it was intended that we might think of the life of our Lord Jesus that was broken for us in the midst of a, a young man's life in which he had devoted his heart solely to doing what was right before you. And to have that life broken, truly there was something miraculous going on. 
And we understand that there was a sacrifice being paid for our sins. Help us, Father, as we take the cup as well, to remember that it was a sacrifice in which the, the person who was sacrificed truly did die, providing a basis for the removal of sins forever, as far as the East is from the West. Help us, Lord, to embrace these truths as we take these elements together in Jesus' name.